You are listening to the weekly podcast of Fellowship Bible Church of Paragool. For more information about our church, please visit us at www.fellowshipparagool.com. But for now, we are going to be in Jonah chapter 1. We're kicking off a new series. If you have uh, still found it, uh, or you still have not been able to find the book of Jonah, don't feel bad. Um, if you are trying to get there from Genesis, you'll never find it. And so it's tucked away in that little uh, chunk of scripture that some of us uh, seldom read. And so I encourage you to start in Matthew and flip over to the left about eight books, and then you'll find it. Or you can use your table of contents, or you can just look on the screen. Uh, we'll throw it up there for you. And so uh, the book of Jonah is a curious little book. Is that... I think safe to say, um, it's a short read. It's only two pages in the ESV. And, um, and yet, though it's short, it's very familiar. In fact, if you have grown up in church, you've probably heard somewhat of the story of Jonah. Just to see a show of hands, how many of you are somewhat familiar with the story of Jonah? Let's see a raise of hand. Okay, the majority of you are familiar with the story. And so if you grew up in a church setting, when you think of Jonah, you might think of VeggieTales. Um, you might think of Sunday school where your teacher put uh, a whale and Jonah on a, on a little felt board and kind of depicted, you know, Jonah being swallowed by a whale and then, you know, vomited out on dry land. And so to say the least, the book of Jonah is a very bizarre story. And because of that, there's a lot of people in our culture, and even people in churches who would say that the book of Jonah is not a true historical account. They would say that this is actually a, a fairy tale or maybe a parable at best. But uh, as a pastor, uh, on behalf of the pastors, let me just say this. I do believe that the book of Jonah is a true historical, literal account. Um, and I believe that for three reasons. One is because at the center of the story is a God who we learned created the entire universe. So out of nothing, God created everything. And the way I look at it is if God can create human beings who are able then to create submarines that hundreds of people can live in underwater six months at a time, it's possible that God can create an environment where Jonah can live in the belly of a fish for three days. Can we conclude that? Right? So that's part of the reason I believe it's a literal account. Another reason I believe that is because the story takes place in the midst of a true historical context. As we'll see in just a minute, it doesn't say that Jonah went to Narnia. It's going to say he went to Nineveh. Right? And Nineveh is a true historical city. I mean, you can learn all you want in encyclopedias or Google or wherever about the city of Nineveh. But a third and final reason that we believe this is a true historical account is because Jesus believed it was a true historical account. In fact, you can read about it in Matthew chapter 12, Matthew 16, and Luke chapter 11, where Jesus himself speaks of Jonah being a true story. And so again, is it weird? Yes. But is it true? Yes. And I believe that it has very profound implications for us in the 21st century today. And that's why we're going to dive into it over the next five weeks. And so again, Jonah chapter 1, we're going to start in verse 1. And um, we'll actually uh, read down to verse 10, but we're just going to focus on verse 3. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord, and he went down to Joppa, and he found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid to the fare, and he went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God. And they hurled the cargo that was into the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. 
But Jonah had gone down to the innermost parts of the ship and laid down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots, that we may know on whose account the evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? And he said to them, I'm a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord of God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. And then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you so much for each person who is here today. And I, I ask that right now in the midst of the busyness of life and all the concerns that we have and thoughts racing through our minds and our hearts this morning, that you will be able to calm that raging sea and that you will focus our attention on you. Holy Spirit, we need you to take this word right now, to drive it into our hearts, to make it alive in us, to transform us from the inside out. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. All right, so confession time. Are you ready? How many of you, and I want to see a show of hands, between the ages of of being able to walk and before you got your first car, how many of you at one point tried or did run away from home? Let me see a show of hands. Okay, that's actually more than I I thought. So several of you, okay? For those of you that ran away from home, looking back at it as a kid, you can realize how silly it was, right? But at the time, whenever you ran away from home or attempted to, it was because there was a lot of frustration or turmoil in the moment that led you to want to run away, probably because your parents did something that you didn't want them to do or, or whatever else. And what's interesting as a kid is when you run away, you don't really think about where you're running to, you just think about what you're running away from, right? And so uh, this was very much the case for me whenever I was five years old. I don't remember exactly what happened, but my mom and dad had asked me to do something that I certainly did not want to do. And so I decided, you know what, I'm just going to run away. I'm going to get away from the presence of my family, and I'm just going to go somewhere. I don't know where, but I'm getting out of here. And so whenever uh, they walked out of my room, what I decided was I was going to lift up the window in my bedroom, and then I was going to flee, right? And so I didn't know what I was going to take with me, but I knew there was one thing that I needed, which I actually brought with me. I didn't know my mom still had it. I didn't take water. I didn't take food, but I did take my chickadee. Got this. Yeah, thank you very much. I had no idea she still had it, but I was asking her about the story, and she said, yeah, I still got your chickadee, and I was like, we're going to have it for Sunday, and so to prove the story, and so she said, sure, and so anyways, it's in my backpack, not always, but this morning it is, and so, um, and so we, uh, I got my chickadee, I hopped out the window, and I was like, man, I am out of here, but within probably, I would say, five minutes walking through uh, Paragould in the hot sun in July, I realized my good plan was actually a terrible plan. Right, And I didn't even make it all the way down Kennedy Street before I realized I need to go back home because it's better to be with my parents than to be out here on my own running to where I don't even know where I'm running to. And so eventually I returned back home and uh, my parents said, I love you, and then spanked my bottom. And so like, um, but all was good. Now, here's the deal. The majority of us in here don't have the fact in common that we've run away from parents, right? But one thing we do have in common this morning is this, and it's far more serious What we have in common is that all of us in here have tried to run away from God. And I don't just mean one time in your life, but all of us have attempted to run away from God. I would even say within the past week, for some of you even last night. 
Just another confession for you. Uh, yesterday, I came home. I went and played tennis about 7 o'clock yesterday morning. I got home, and I found a uh, an Amazon box on my kitchen counter that my wife was supposed to return two days earlier. And I would love to say that I looked at that and thought, oh, I'll get it, you know. But in my heart, though I knew I should have been like, I'll take care of that, I look at my wife and basically kind of, you know, in a, I thought, very gentle way, begin to give her the what for. Man, I asked you to return this a couple days ago. Why didn't you get this returned? You know, what's going to happen? Are they even going to take it back now? Now we're going to be charged this, and we don't even need this, blah, 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 that sort of thing. And, you know, I'm busy all week long, and I don't want to have to come home on Saturday and have to do work that I feel like should have been done this week, right? And as you can imagine, that didn't go very well. Um, my wife was not very happy about that, so she began to come back with some stuff, and then I went at things. And basically, in that moment, I thought, you know what? I really want her to feel guilty for not, in my mind, pulling her weight around the house. And so what I then thought to do at that point, that the Holy Spirit was telling me, like, Jared, shut up. Um, what I decided, you know what I'm going to do now? I'm going to iron. That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to grab four shirts that were wrinkled that she should have ironed that week, and uh, I'm going to pull them out. I'm just going to iron them in front of her, you know, and just be like, this is my life. You know, just working all the time. And so um, <laughs> some of you are like, good grief. Um, and so, so I do that. She, uh, <laughs> she takes off to, um, to go look for a, a gift for someone's wedding shower. I actually go to Adam and Carrie's house to help do a little painting. And uh, while I'm there the whole time, I'm just feeling the spirit convicting me of like, you've got to address this, Jared. Like, you've got to work on this. And the whole time, I'm like, I'm not going to work on that. Like, this is her part. It was the package. She's supposed to return it. It's not my fault. And so, but eventually, I go home. We're still doing pretty good. You know how you had those arguments? You kind of go your separate ways. And eventually, it's like, okay, we're not really mad anymore. So what's the point of dealing with it? Well, like, that's not a good idea, right? I knew there was sin in my heart. I knew I needed to deal with this issue. And so, actually, it wasn't until I'm such a slow learner. It wasn't until last night, around 8 o'clock, I go to look at my notes to preach a message that I've titled Running From God, that God said, how about before you tell people not to run from me, you stop running from me, and you address this issue in your own marriage. And so I had to sit down with my wife and say, man, I'm sorry, I need to ask for your forgiveness. I wanted you to serve me rather than me serve you. I wanted you to feel guilt rather than grace. I mean, like... It's unbelievable how I'm sitting there and I'm thinking to myself, I'm supposed to preach this message on running from God, and yet here I am on a Saturday night running from God. And maybe for you, you're like, well, my marriage is awesome. Okay, maybe for you this past week or last night, it wasn't that you had marital issues, but maybe for you, it was that you were looking at something on a screen that you weren't supposed to look at. Maybe for others this morning, it's that you know God's calling you to get involved in community, and yet you refuse to do so because it seems scary or inconvenient. Maybe for others of you, it's, it's not sharing the gospel with a coworker that you know God is calling you to speak up and share your faith with, or it's not going across the street to meet with that neighbor. I don't know what it may be for you, but here's the reality. All of us in here today have things in our life that we know God has called us to do, and we're not doing them. Or we have things in our life that we know God has called us not to do, and we continue to do them, and therefore that makes us runners, just like the man that this book of Jonah is named after. For some of you, maybe you don't know much about Jonah, and that's really because the Bible doesn't say a whole lot about him. Jewish tradition actually tells us that Jonah was the son of the widow that the prophet Elijah raised from the dead. I don't know, the Bible doesn't say that, but Jewish tradition, but that was kind of what they passed on. And so they would say because of this, Jonah grew up aspiring to be a prophet. And so by 760 B.C., he found himself prophesying kind of 
to the northern tribes of Israel. And the reason I say kind of is because really the only other prophecy we see of Jonah is in 2 Kings chapter 14, where Jonah is trying to prophesy. He says to King Jeroboam that God's favor is on you, and therefore you will be, uh, you will have favor over your kingdom. God will bless you. But then the prophet Amos actually came up behind Jonah and said, no, Jonah got it all wrong. That prophecy is actually not correct at all. So that's why I say he was kind of prophesying. That's really all the information we have about Jonah leading us into this book. And then we come to verse 2. And we see that God comes to this man, Jonah, and he says to this prophet, Jonah, I want you to leave Israel. I want you to leave the comforts of your home, and I want you to go to this great city of Nineveh, and I want you to call out against them because of their evil. Seems like a fairly simple assignment for a prophet, but yet we go to verse 3, and it says that when Jonah got his assignment, what did he do? He fled. He ran. And his running is so far and so intense, it, I think it's important for us to see how far he ran. Um, do we have the map? Can I put that on the screen for people? So whenever Jonah received his call from God to go to Nineveh, he was actually about where that A is on the map. Okay? Rather than going to Nineveh, what the Bible tells us is Jonah actually went down to that seaport city of Joppa. And from there, Joppa is about 550 miles from Nineveh. But you know what uh, Jonah decided to do from there? He got on a ship and he decided to head towards Tarshish, which, by the way, is 2,500 miles away. Literally, in this time period, that is as far as a ship could take you in the ancient world. Jonah is literally going to the ends of the earth to try to escape God and God's call on his life, which is absolutely crazy because literally we would have a better chance of shoveling smoke with a rake than escaping the presence of God. The Bible is clear that God is eternal. He is in all places at all time, but Jonah at this point is delusional. He is trying to run from God, but obviously, as we will see, he cannot outrun God. The question we should be asking as we look at the story is, why is Jonah running? And in short, here's what I think you need to know. The city of Nineveh, the city that God is calling Jonah to, is actually the largest city in the ancient world. Not only that, it is the largest military power on the planet. It is a wicked and it is a ferocious city. How ferocious? They actually won the gold medal for being able to torture their enemies by skinning them alive. Like they were the best. They are the ones who perfected this art. And they just so happen to be enemies to Jonah and to Israel. These are the cats that God says to Jonah, I want you to go to them and I want you to basically say, turn or burn. I mean, can you imagine if this was you? Steve, could you imagine if God came to you this afternoon and said, Steve, I've got a mission for you. I want you to leave your wife. I want you to leave your kids. I want you to leave Paragold. I want you to go and I want you to catch a plane to Libya. And I want you to walk right into the middle of an ISIS camp. And here's what I want you to tell them. Repent or die. Exactly. <laughs> Yeah, no one's like, sign me up, you know? Yet this is exactly what God calls Jonah to do. And that should be a reminder to all of us this morning that God is not afraid of calling you to hard things. Maybe for some of you this morning, you've become convinced that if what you are doing is hard, 
if what you are doing is inconvenient, if what you are doing means you might lose some things, then it must not be from God. The truth is what we see is an example after example in Scripture where God calls people to do things that are humanly impossible. Where he calls people to do things that are risky, scary, and sometimes absolutely illogical. If there was ever a good excuse to run from God, I would think this is a good excuse. And yet what we discover as we continue to read the Bible and as we read this story is that's not even the excuse that Jonah had for not wanting to go to Nineveh. You say, well, what are you talking about? Well, if you look with me in Jonah chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, spoiler alert, Jonah at this point has gone to Nineveh. He has preached the message to them. The people of Nineveh actually repent of their sins and they turn to God. And you would think as a prophet, as a preacher, Jonah would be excited, right? This is like a great thing to put on your resume. Like, I converted a whole city, you know, like. But we come to verse 1 and what do we see? It says, Jonah was very displeased and he was angry. And in verse 2, he prayed to the Lord. He said, oh, Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? This is why I made haste to flee from Tarshish. Okay, this is why I ran from you. You ready? Here's the reason. I knew you were a gracious God and merciful and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Translation, why did Jonah run from God? It is not because he was afraid that Nineveh would not repent and therefore destroy him. But rather, the reason Jonah ran from God is because he was afraid they would repent and God would not destroy them. In other words, the reason Jonah ran was not because he was scared for his life. The reason he ran is because he wanted the people of Nineveh to go to hell. Therefore, I think it's safe to conclude that Jonah ran from God because Jonah did not have the heart of God. Yes, he was a religious leader. Yes, he was considered to be by Israel the spiritually elite. Yes, he was a prophet of God, but he did not have the heart of God. And we see evidence of this in three ways. And I want you to listen carefully because I want us to do some soul searching this morning to see where we may be like Jonah. The first way that we see that Jonah did not have a heart of God is Jonah did not have a heart that was sensitive to sin. The Bible is clear that our God is a holy God. Therefore, when he looked at the sin of the people of Nineveh, he could not be okay with it. When he looked at the people in Nineveh and he saw them sinning, because he is good, right, and perfect, he grieved their sin. He mourned over it. He he hated their sin. And because he saw them living out of step with the way he created them to live, he said, I must do something about it. And so that's whenever he comes to Jonah and he says, Jonah, because I love the people of Nineveh, I want you to go to them with this message to tell them that if they do not repent, they will be overturned. Now, some of us, you've heard this story in the past and you think, man, this is so angry of God. It's so mean of God to to bring this message of judgment upon them. But what you need to hear today is this message of judgment is a message of grace. God's wrath on Nineveh would be to not say anything about their sin. But instead, like a loving father who warns his kids not to step out into the, to the street unless they die, God comes to them and says, stop living in sin lest this be the death of you. I'm so thankful that we have people in this church that are sensitive to sin. 
And not just sin in their own life, but in the sin of others. I had lunch with a missional community member just this past week who shared with me a story about uh, learning about sin that someone else was struggling about in their MC. And what would have been the very easy thing to do would have been like, eh, it's not really none of my business. Ah, I don't really, well, that'd be awkward to have that conversation. Instead, like he went and he lovingly addressed the issue. And I asked him at lunch, I said, uh, to this person, I said, was this difficult for you to do that? And this person said, absolutely it was. But I know it's the most loving thing that I could possibly do because I know how destructive sin really is. Let me ask you a question this morning. Do you share that same sensitivity to sin? Do you believe that sin really is destructive and therefore, like God, have a heart that breaks for people you see living in rebellion against Him? When you see people in your missional community walking out of step with how God created them to live, do you in compassion go lovingly towards them to confront that sin in the proper setting in a loving and gracious way? When you think about the scores of people who are living in our community, who are worshiping the creation over the Creator, does it break your heart? Does it move you to tears? Do you look and do you have a sense of urgency that, man, like I've got to get to them so that I can help pull them out of darkness and into the light? Or is it possible that you have become calloused, that you have become numb to the sin that is in you or around you. On one side, as Christians, we should be the happiest, most joy-filled people on the planet. But on the other side, we should be some of the saddest people on the planet. And do you know why? Because our eyes have been opened to the re- reality, the horrific effects of what sin does into individuals, to families, to cities, and beyond. And because we mourn this, we should not just sit back and shake our fingers right or our heads at people, but we should be moved in compassion to do something about it. Jonah did not have a heart that was sensitive to sin. Secondly, we see that Jonah did not have a heart like God because Jonah did not have a heart that was committed to God's redemptive plan. Do you realize that whenever God calls you into his family, guys, he calls you into a mission? Do you realize today that if you claim to be a Christian, please hear me carefully, if you've been saved by God, you have been set apart by God as a missionary to be light in a dark world. The Apostle Paul, who used to be a terrorist, who wrote a majority of the New Testament, or a lot of the New Testament, he goes, he meets Jesus, he goes from being a terrorist to a missionary, and in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 7, or chapter 7, he says that the moment that we become a Christian, we are bought with a price. Guys, that means your life is no longer yours. If you have been saved by God, you have been set apart by Him as a missionary in this world. And listen, our whole lives should be structured around that call. Our whole lives should be structured around this mission. For some of you here today, you are, you are buying into the lie that you can pursue Jesus and the American dream. Guys, that is impossible. I am not saying you cannot have a nice house. I'm not saying you cannot have a nice car or nice things. Go for it. But please, guys, hear me. Do not buy into the lie that you can live however you want and then on Sunday sprinkle a little Jesus on top and then spend eternity in heaven. God does not just want your afterlife. He wants this life. 
And he wants all of it. He doesn't want us to say, here's my plans, God. If you don't mind, please sign off on this for me. No, he wants you to submit all of your plans to him. And again, I'm not saying you can't be wealthy. There's nothing wrong with being rich. Money can be a fantastic thing. I'm not saying you can't live a comfortable lifestyle. But here's what I'm saying. Man, Jesus wants you to sit before him and say, here it is. Here's my time, here's my money, here's my energy. Now you do with it whatever you want to do. So that other people can go from worshiping creation to worshiping you as their creator and therefore experience the life that they are longing for that is only found in you. I want to ask you this morning, whenever you look at your time, when you look at your money, when you look at your energy, does it reflect a life that is fully submitted to the God of the universe? Or, like Jonah, is it a half-hearted commitment? A commitment that says, I don't want to go to hell, therefore I'm going to give you a little bit of this and a little bit of that because I don't really like that so much anyway, but this over here, no, 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 I'm keeping this to myself. Jonah ran from God because he did not have a heart of God, and we know this because he did not have a sensitive heart to sin. We know this because he also did not have a heart that was committed to the redemptive plan of God. He did not want to give his life to the mission, doing God's work in God's way. But we also know, third and finally, that Jonah did not have a heart of God because he did not have a heart of mercy. Again in verse 2, Jonah prays the Lord. He says, O Lord, is it not this that I said whenever I was yet in my country? This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. This is why I ran For I knew that you were a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. What Jonah is doing here is he's actually quoting from Exodus 34. This is actually a passage of Scripture. It's the most quoted verse in the entire Bible, and that's because for Israel it was their greatest confession of faith to the core of who God is. And you know what Jonah is doing here? Because he's so mad that God has saved Nineveh. He is taking this beautiful, sacred, glorious statement and he is throwing it back into God's face as an accusation against him. How crazy. And what's amazing is God actually doesn't destroy Jonah on the spot for doing it. God is just as merciful to Jonah as he is to Nineveh. The problem is Jonah did not see his need for mercy. And therefore, because Jonah thought that he had moved beyond his need for mercy, he no longer wanted to extend mercy to others. Another way of saying it, and this is where we got the title for our series, when God called Jonah to Nineveh, Jonah said no to mercy because Jonah did not know mercy. I wonder if the same is true for you today. Is there anybody in this city who you honestly would rather see be judged than forgiven? Is there anyone or any group of people that you hope never make it into the church? Is there anyone right now or any group of people, if God said, hey, I want you to go and I want you to preach the good news of the gospel to them, you would say, no way. If you can answer yes to that, 
If there's anybody in here that you're like, you know what, man, there's a group of people out there. I just want God to hurry up and just to drop the hammer on them. Then maybe there's a possibility that we have lost touch with the heart of God. Last week, after I got an opportunity to preach in Conway, I got to go uh, to Buffalo Wild Wings with one of their pastors. His name's Daniel. And we got talking after it was over, and um, he shared his story with me. And here's Daniel's story. I'm going to have to bring him in sometime and us have him share it. Daniel's mom was murdered a few years ago. Her husband, her uh, boyfriend, beat her, literally beat her to death. And what's incredible about Daniel's story is not that his mom got beat to death, but that two days after he buried his mom, he got to lead the man that beat his mom to death to Christ. And as he shares the story, he said it was two days after he had, um, after the funeral, and he was in his Jeep, and he was driving, and he saw this man on a bike on the side of the road. And he said, immediately, my first thought would be what your first thought is, I'm going to kill him. I'm going to accidentally hit this guy right now. And so he said he sped up to 90 miles per hour, and he's heading towards this guy. He had turned around and was actually coming back towards him. And he said, I was about to hit him, and all of a sudden, the spirit just grabbed a hold of me. I threw my brakes. I hopped out of my car, and he said, I got before this guy, and I said, I have to forgive you. And the guy's like, what, what? And he said, I have to forgive you for killing my mother because I have sinned against a holy God, and if he can forgive me, of all of my sins against him. There's no way that I cannot forgive you of your sins against me. He goes on to preach the gospel to this guy. He said by that Sunday, he was a youth pastor at the time. By that Sunday, the guy was in a church service with him. For the next few weeks, he was there before he had to go to prison. But before he went to prison, he ended up giving his life to Jesus. And to this day, they still have a relationship and the guy is still following after Christ. It is an absolutely incredible story. And as I listened to it, here was my thought. That's the heart of God. It's a heart that says, because God has taken this enemy and made him his friend, how can I ever now not try to make my enemies my friend? And I want to be just real clear. Do not please leave here and say, well, Jared says that we just shouldn't hold people accountable for their sin. That is not what I'm saying. I'm not saying that that we shouldn't call sin sin. I'm not saying there should not be consequences for our actions. But here's the point I'm trying to make. If you share the heart of God, when you see people living in sin or when people sin specifically against you, here's the proper response. The proper response is not, I hope they get what's coming to them. The proper response is, I hope they receive the grace and the mercy that I have experienced. It absolutely blows my mind how the church could be anything but that. How could the church be anything of all people? How could we be anything but compassionate, patient, tender, loving, gracious, and merciful? And again, I'm not saying that we shouldn't sweep over sin. But like God, we should lovingly call people to turn from their sin. Not so they just believe like us or think just like us or share the same worldview as us, not just because it makes life easier for us. We should call them from their sin to turn to Jesus so they can encounter and enjoy the God of the universe. If we can be honest this morning, we all have a little Jonah in us, don't we? We all have areas where we're still trying to run from God. We all do. I did yesterday, as I confessed. We all have a Tarshish that we are trying to run towards. Maybe for some of you this morning, if you can be honest, you do not have a heart that is sensitive to sin. Maybe for some of you, you're not sensitive to your own sin. 
Maybe for others, you're not sensitive to the sin of people around you. You just kind of turn a blind eye and think, ah, you know. Maybe for others of you in here, you are not fully committed to God's plan, his redemptive plan to, to restore the world. Sure, you're here on Sunday morning. Maybe you'll throw some money in the offering plate, but you are not fully committed to living as a missionary in your workplace and in your neighborhood and in the schools or wherever you may be so that other people can be going from being far from God to brought into a relationship with Him. Maybe for others this morning, you have been sinned against. And you're still hanging on to bitterness. Maybe you're struggling with self-righteousness. Maybe there's a group of people that you are looking down on in our city or somewhere else, and honestly, you think that you would rather them burn in hell than experience the forgiveness of God. The good news is, is this for all of us as we come to an end this morning. No matter where you find yourself, as you will see in this story, no matter how far you have run, even if you sit here today and you have turned your back on God, listen to me, I promise you, God has not turned his back on you. He loves you. And you know how much he loves you? He sent a better Jonah to come and rescue you. He sent his own son, Jesus, to go into a wicked and ferocious world. How ferocious? The man that he came to rescue would eventually crucify him. And why would he be crucified? Why would he allow himself to be nailed to a cross and die so that runners like you and me could be forgiven? That's why. So that... Those of us who are born enemies of God can go from being his enemies to being his beloved children. Maybe for some of you this morning, you have ran from God. You have been running far and you have been running hard. Listen to me. God's grace is sufficient for you. As I was pulling into Conway last Saturday night, it's the first time I pulled over that hill and saw those city lights since I was 20 years old. When I was 20 years old, I pulled into that city because I was running from God. I moved there to get away from God. I was mad at God. I was mad at everyone else, and I was getting away from all of it. I had literally just thrown the finger to God with my entire lifestyle. And God in his great grace still met me there in my bedroom in Conway, Arkansas, and he saved me. He forgave me, and he brought me into a relationship with him. The same can be said for you today, guys. Jesus Christ is the better Jonah who was sent by God for you and me. And you know what? Unlike Jonah, he did not come begrudgingly. He came willfully and joyfully. He lived a perfect life that none of us could ever live. He died a death that we all deserve to die for our sins. And then he rose from the dead, conquering sin, death, and hell. So that now we can stand before God holy and blameless and accepted. How does this happen? You don't have to try harder to be better. You simply have to stop running and look to God and to trust him with everything that you have, sin, flaws, everything, and know that in him is true salvation.